following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I wonder, as you think of your own life this morning, just a real simple question. How do you see yourself? How do you evaluate your own value and your own worth? When you look in the mirror and you see that other person looking back at you, what do you see? Do you see a picture of greatness? Do you see a picture of purpose and value? Or do you see a picture of weakness and hopelessness? When you look at that other person in the mirror staring back at you, do you see great value and significance? Or do you look and see insignificance? Has life brought circumstances your way that have caused you to reevaluate who you are? To reassess your own worth and your own value and your own significance. Maybe there was a time when you were younger and you, like the little boy who stepped up to the plate, you were convinced that you were great. And you, you sort of rushed out into life with all sorts of with joy and, and pleasure and fervor and excitement and happiness, convinced that you were somebody of significance in the world, only to have life circumstances come at you time and time and time again and cause you to step back and reevaluate and reassess. You swung and missed a few times. By about the third time, you're forced to reassess. And at some point, you looked at yourself and you no longer saw great significance, but you started to see insignificance. At some point, you no longer saw great value. You started to wonder, am I worth much of anything to anybody? At some point, you quit charging into life with, with joy and happiness because you saw purpose and value and reason and greatness in your experience. And you just sort of started pulling back inward to your own self. Discouraged, disappointed. Ebbing and flowing with seasons and moments of hopelessness and purposelessness. What about when you look toward the future? When you think about the future and what you're destined for? What what kind of thoughts does that generate in your mind? Does it generate thoughts of greatness and purpose and value? Or does that also generate thoughts of insignificance, lack of value, lack of purpose, lack of joy, lack of hope? You see, as I evaluate my own self and other people through which I have the privilege of navigating life, I find that there are some people in the world that value themselves too highly. You run across those folks occasionally, right? They're the folks that you go the other way in the grocery store. You know, you dive behind the produce so you don't have to encounter them kind of thing. Suddenly you have to use the restroom really bad. But on the whole... I don't think that's the experience of most people. I certainly don't think it's the experience of most believers that I know. In fact, I think the opposite is true. I think most Christians I know 
severely undervalue themselves. They evaluate themselves far too low. When they look in the mirror, they assess themselves far too low. When they assess their own value and their own purpose and their own significance and the, the meaning of their life, they, they undershoot it severely. Oh, life has given us reasons maybe to do that. Other people have spoken things into our lives that we've taken on and owned as truth that aren't true. Circumstances that have been painful and hard have come our way. Hopes that we had never materialized. Things that we wanted really haven't come our way. And those circumstances have distorted our view of ourselves. Dashed hopes, robbed joy. If that in any way touches onto your life, if in any way that relates to anything in your experience this morning, then I think this text is a brilliant text for you to be here to walk through with me today. Because what people need when they're in that particular season of life, what they need is exactly what that little boy needed at strike three. They needed to pause and stop. They needed to not be quick to judgment. And they need to reassess the grid through which they're evaluating themselves before they make a final determination. They need to reevaluate the truth about who they truly are. They need to reevaluate what exactly it is that gives purpose to our lives. They need to rethink what it is that they're made of. They need to reassess the truth about the future. And what they're destined for. And that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews in our text today would would hope to draw us into. He would hope to draw us into being at strike three and doing that reassessment. And asking ourselves the question, what is the grid through which I evaluate my own significance? What is the the, the mental process through which I uh, survey my own significance? What is the, 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 the... Sort of the grid through which, or the lens through which I see myself when I look in the mirror and determine my own value and my own purpose and the the, the value of my future. And that's what he draws us to today. I think in some way this subject crosses all of our radars at some point in life. If it isn't crossing it for you now, it will at some point, I suspect... The writer of Hebrews is drawing us into this, and it's in the midst of really this first section of the book where he is just sort of exalting the absolute superiority of Jesus. I mean, that is the the main theme of this whole first part of the book, is just the absolute superiority of Jesus. And if you remember the first section that we studied in this book in chapter 1, he just spent a lot of time really focusing on the absolute glory and majesty and superiority of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is from all eternity. Eternity, the one who made all things, the one in whom all things exist, the one for whom all things exist. He's superior to anything and everything and everyone. And at the close of chapter 1, he was focusing in on the, the whole idea that Jesus is superior to the angels. If you recall, we studied a little bit of that. But right in the midst of celebrating the absolute superiority of Jesus, he wants to also do something else. He wants to remind a little band of persecuted believers 
that life isn't over. He wants to remind them of some very critical things that they absolutely needed to know in order to survive, in order to thrive, in order to maintain joy in the midst of what they were dealing with and their circumstances. And so what he does is he challenges them in this text, in this moment, right in the midst of all of this, to reevaluate themselves and to reevaluate them, their circumstances and to reevaluate it all through a different grid. He wants them to reevaluate it through a grid that's built around who Jesus is, who they were made to be, and the future God has designed for them. And if they can do that, it's going to reorient their whole view of who they are, their own value, their own significance, their own purpose, their own destiny. And if you can reevaluate yourself through that grid, rather than the grid that comes from our fallen nature, rather than the grid that's imposed upon us from a lost and dying world around us, it will change how you value yourself and how you see your own significance and how you see your own purpose and how you understand the the roots of joy and how you maintain your fervor for life when the circumstances don't give you a lot of reasons to do so. Just for context, we're picking up in verse 5 of chapter 2, and I'm going to read it in just a moment. But so that you understand how this flows in the book, if you go back to chapter 1 in your Bible, just put the page over if it's a page before. At the end of chapter 1, you see this whole section on Jesus' superiority to angels. It begins, excuse me, in somewhere around verse 4, and it goes to the end of the the chapter. The writer says, In verse 4, speaking of Jesus, having become as much superior to angels as his name that he's inherited is more excellent to theirs. And he goes on to describe Jesus' superiority to angels all the way through to the very end of verse 14. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, he gives us sort of this aside that deals with the dangers of drifting. And when we pick up in verse 5, it's almost as though he picks right up where he left off at the end of chapter 1. If you were to go back and read this in your own time, read through chapter 1 through verse 14 and then pick right up in verse 5 of chapter 2 and it reads just like a seamless narrative a seamless argument if you will and so in a sense we're sort of coming back in to this argument or this conversation about Jesus superiority over the angels which is going to carry us through a little bit further into chapter 2 what's going on in the general flow of the text is this The author of Hebrews is moving from a conversation and a focus on Jesus' absolute deity, and he's moving to a focus on his absolute humanity. And he's helping us to see who Jesus is in fullness. That yes, he is the God who made all things and in in whom and for whom all things exist, but he's also the God who becomes man. A God who identifies with us. A guy who takes on our sin and goes to a cross and dies in our place. And so this section that we look at this morning is right in the middle of that transition from one theme to the other. And it's in verse 5 that he says this, working through verse 9. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere... What is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. But now, 
and putting everything under subject, in subjection to Him, He left nothing outside His control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him, but we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that, by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. It's the word of the Lord. Now, I don't know how verses 5 through 9 land on you when you first read it. But when I first read it, and when I second read it, and third read it, it was a confusing bunch of sentences that I had a hard time sort of making sense of. But then when you begin to walk through it, you see it sort of fall into place in a way that makes all sorts of sense. All sorts of sense. Here the author is taking these believers who are beleaguered, who are beaten down, who are beaten down by life and by people and by circumstances, who are going to be facing great temptation to look at themselves in the mirror and evaluate their lives through the wrong grid and determine that they have no value and that they have no purpose, that they have no real significance, that they're abandoned and that their lives really don't matter and perhaps even abandoned by God Himself. And he wants them to see the world through a whole different lens. He wants to reorient the lens through which they evaluate all of their lives because he knows that when we see life through the wrong lens and we evaluate ourselves through the wrong grid, there are consequences that are severe. We tend to overvalue things that have no meaning and we tend to undervalue the things that are of absolute value. We lose sight of our true identity. We forget the purpose for which we were made. We forget the destiny that belongs to us. And we end up discouraged, defeated, depressed, and hopelessness reigns in our hearts. This text makes one contribution. Now, the theme of the whole section is the superiority of Jesus. We're pulling out this morning sort of a secondary theme that comes up uniquely here that is absolutely critical for this. And here's what it is. Here's the theme. The theme is really simple. It's a real simple message. And it's this. If you're here this morning and you're a believer and you know Jesus Christ, you were made for greatness. You were made for greatness. When you step up to the plate of life and you say, I am made for greatness, you're not just talking fantasy world. You're talking reality. If you're here today and you're a Christian and you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you were not made for mediocrity. You were made for great purpose. You were not made for discouragement and depression. You were made for greatness. If you're a Christian here this morning, you were absolutely not made for hopelessness. You were made to be great. Your Creator did not make you to live with a a joyless lack of purpose and a joyless lack of value. He made you to live a life of greatness. We're not currently experiencing the fullness of the greatness for which He's made us. But nonetheless, that doesn't diminish the greatness itself. Let's see how this text plays this out. Look at the beginning of this. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. 
<coughs> now, excuse me, I'm sorry, getting over a sinus Thanksgiving crud. So, I apologize if I hack on you a little bit this morning. Get this. The first point here is you were made to be great. And he brings it out this way. It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. Now, he's already contrasted Jesus and the angels uh, in a couple of different ways. But he tells us a couple things in that very first statement. That, first of all, there is a world to come. There is a world to come. That's pretty simple. And if you're a believer, that's sort of obvious, right? There is a world to come. There is a world that is, and then there is a world that's to come. There's a world that is, that we experience at the moment, but this world isn't the only world that there is. There is another world, a world that is yet to come. What we experience right now is what we experience in the world that is, but one day we're going to experience a different experience, and that's going to be in a world that is to come. There is a a, a situation in which we exist in one world, but this is not the world where we will always exist. There is another world yet to come, which will be our eternal existence, another place, another time, one that is not temporary, one that is permanent and eternal. What we see right now is not all that there is. What we experience right now is not all that there is. It's just what is. Things are not going to always be the way they are right now. Changes are coming on the horizon. And whatever your experience is at the moment, it's not going to be your experience forever. No matter how good your experience of life is at the moment, it's not going to be your experience forever. And no matter how bad your experience of life is at the moment, it also is not going to be your experience forever. It's just your experience in the world that is right now. But he tells us something beyond the fact that there's a world to come. He tells us something about that world to come. That world to come is not subjected to angels. And now when you look at this at first glance, and we go, what in the world does that have to do with anything? What does it have to do with anything that the world that is to come is not subjected to angels? Well, just as a quick, very quick reminder from when we talked about Jesus and angels to begin with, in, in, in the time in which the author is writing this book, uh, sort of the established religious Judaism of the day had, had sort of a contorted view of who angels were and what their value was. They believed all sorts of things about angels. They, they believed it's that angels, some people believed that angels acted sort of like God's senate and they, they ruled with God the affairs of earth. There were some who believed that there were 200 angels who controlled the movement of the stars. There were people who had believed that there was a mighty angel who ruled over the seas and the, the, the tides and the waves and the storms. They believed some that other angels controlled the frost and the dew and the rain and the snow and the hail and the thunder and all of these sorts of things. They, they believed that there were angels who were guardians over, over hell and angels who were torturers of the damned so on and so forth. They, they had a very exalted view of angels, and they saw angels as sort of God's co-rulers in, in the world. And so if you understand angels that way, and you're coming from a mindset that sees angels as exalted beings who are, who are having at least some sort of delegated authority from God to rule the world, then it would just make sense to think, well, if angels operate like that here in this world, the odds are that they're going to also be rulers in the world to come as well. That, that angels, if they're that high and exalted here, that that's probably who is going to be ruling alongside God in the world that is to come. But the writer of Hebrews says not so fast. He categorically denies that whole thought process. 
He says, no, in fact, it's not angels who don't rule in God's eternal kingdom. Angels, he's already told us, in fact, are not rulers. They're servants. God is the one. Jesus is the one who is superior. He's the one who rules. They are the ones who serve him who is the ruler. And in the eternal kingdom, they're also going to be servants who continue to serve the ruler. The, the, the world that is to come is not to be subjected to angels. They're not going to be rulers. No, no, no. You see, God has designed the world that is to come. He's designated others to rule there. And it's not angels. But if it's not the angels that God has designated to rule in His eternal kingdom, then who is it? You remember that person that you looked at in the mirror a minute ago? That's who God has designed to rule in His eternal kingdom. Listen to how he tells us this. He takes us to Psalm 8. There is a world that is to come. That world is not to be subjected to angel rule. That world has been subjected to men to rule. Get this. He says in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, it has been testified somewhere. Now, by the way, when we walk through Hebrews, you're going to see him quote Old Testament passages this way. It's not as though we should not assume that the writer of Hebrews does not know what he's quoting that he does never read Psalm 8. He does this intentionally because he wants the Word of God to stand on its own. It doesn't matter where it was written in the Old Testament. It is the Word of God. And so he hardly ever identifies the precise reference. But this is a precise and exact quote from Psalm 8. If you have your Bible, in fact, you may want to just flip back over to Psalm 8. It's probably a psalm that you've heard at least some piece of before. And we need to give it a little bit of context to make sense of what he's arguing here from it. Psalm 8 is a psalm that begins, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. You probably heard this part. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, the angels, and you've crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. It's a wonderful psalm. It's a psalm about the majesty and glory of God displayed in creation. And the psalmist, it's as though, as he's writing this, he's outside and he's looking up at the host of heavens and he's looking at the stars and the moon. Have you ever done that? Have you ever gone out on a clear, you know, clear night and you just looked up into the, into the heavens and you could just see the stars and you can see the planets and you can just see everything in the heavens and it's just lit up and you, you look up and you just go, man. That is amazing what's up there. And then you begin to, to contemplate in your mind, I mean, what I can see is only just a tiny little smidgen of what's really out there, the vast expanse that God has created. I mean, the, 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 the seemingly endless reaches of stars and planets and moons and the sun and everything that's existing in outer space and the beauty and the glory and the splendor of all of that. I mean, when you really think about it, it's pretty overwhelming. I don't take time to do that very often, but I can remember very clearly one night back in February when this was very vivid to me because I was floating in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean on a Navy ship 
And it was late at night, and I was up on the little wing outside the bridge talking to a young man who was just uh, brand new and, you know, got the jobs that nobody else wants, sitting out there staring at water for hour after hour after hour, doing nothing. And, and I can remember standing on that bridge talking to that young man, and it was a perfectly clear night. There was no light to be found anywhere on the horizon except the stars above. And it was a perfectly clear night. And you look up into that sky, and you just go, wow, wow, God, that is awesome. That is phenomenal, God. And that is just one display of the glory and the majesty of God. The heavens. And when the psalmist looks up, he says, Man, God, that's phenomenal. Your glory and your majesty displayed in the heavens. It's just unimaginable. It's unbelievable. God, you are beyond, beyond awesome in all of its reaches. He is struck by the majesty of glory of God. And then he's also struck by a second thought after that. But God, if you're that awesome, there's something even more incredible to me. Why in the world would you care about a little speck like me? The God who is that majestic and glorious to create something of that vast expanse. Why in the world? What is a man that you would give a rip about him? The psalmist looks at the vast expanse of the, of the universe and he sees himself as a little dinky, tiny, little insignificant speck in the big picture. And he can't understand why God would care about such a speck. Why would such a glorious God care about men? And that's the question he's asking. And then he answers it. You've made him, who's him? Man, a little lower than the angels. And you crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet. He tells us some remarkable things about you and about me. In answering the question, what is the significance of man, a little speck on the the universe, at least by size, compared to the vastness of God's creation? Oh, there's remarkable significance. Significance unlike anything else God has ever created, no matter how big, no matter how marvelous, no matter how glorious. What is man? That you would care about him, the son of man. By the way, when you see son of man here in Psalm 8, and then you see it reflected or quoted here in Hebrews chapter 2, we are not talking about a reference to Jesus. If you're looking in your ESV Bible, you'll notice that it's not capitalized because it's just a generic term for man. It's Hebrew Hebrew, uh, poetry, parallelism. Man in the line before son of man as a synonym right below it. He's just talking about mankind. He's not talking about Jesus at this point. What is men? What are men? What are the sons of men? What are just people, human beings, that you care about us? He tells us three very significant things about you and three very significant things about me. He says that we were made for a little while, what? Lower than the angels? What does he mean by that? In what way are men made lower than the angels? Well, just a couple of quick things. We're bound by space and time at the moment. They are not. At the moment, mankind is subject to death. Angels are not. At the moment, mankind is subject to a corruption from sin. And angels 
or not. So for the moment, God has created men just a little lower than the angels. But it won't always be that way. Kent Hughes said this, Man is only lower than the angels in that man is in a corporal body and angels are incorporeal. Man is therefore limited in a way angels are not and has lesser power, but man is not lower spiritually or in importance. What an astounding position for such temporary specks as us. People, we have significance because God made us. And there is nothing in creation that is more value than human beings. There is nothing in the vastness of all of God's universe that He's made that has more value and more significance and more purpose than you and than me. But beyond that, it's not just that He made us, but He crowned Him with glory and honor. Mankind is is the pinnacle of all God's creation. When you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and you read the creation narrative, God, you know, you remember how many days did God create the heavens and the earth? Do you remember? Six days He created the heavens and the earth. He created men when? The, The last of His creation, right? And He sent man in the Garden of Eden as the pinnacle of His creation. The creation wasn't good until man was made. Until mankind, male and female, were made. In his image. And it was then that creation was complete. And man was the pinnacle of all that God made. God made everything else. And everything that God has made is a reflection of his glory and his majesty in some way. But man is the pinnacle of his creation. And man carries the glory and the dignity and the value and the presence of God in a way that nothing else in creation ever could. He put Adam and Eve in a garden and he made them king and queen of the world. They were granted all things to enjoy. God Himself walked with them, talked with them. They had special access to Him. There was nothing in creation that had the kind of position and authority and value and purpose and significance that man had. And the psalmist and the writer of Hebrews Hebrews is reflecting on that. Made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor, and everything is in subjection to him. God made man so that every other thing in creation would be in subjection to him. Everything. That includes everything. Men were made to be great, to rule everything that God has made. I mean it when I say you were made for greatness. How does the world define greatness? The world around us defines greatness by things like beauty. If you're beautiful, you're great. By achievement, if you achieve certain things, then that makes you great. By power, if you can accumulate a certain amount of power, then you're viewed as great. By intellect, if you're the smartest person in the room, then you can be seen as great. By prestige, if you can be viewed with uh, sort of the, 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 the value system of the world as, as being prestigious, having accumulated the things that are symbols of prestige in the world, then you are considered great. But every measure of greatness that the world has to offer is a fleeting measuring rod. No matter how much of it you can accumulate, you never can keep it. It always fades. Nothing worse than seeing someone who's relied on their beauty as a 
foundation for their own greatness. To watch what happens when life inevitably moves on and the beauty fades. Or those who view power as the foundation for their greatness. When the power begins to slip through their fingers and others start to rise. It's a sad, sad thing. Or when our value and our significance is built out of our wealth and all of a sudden the investments go down or we lose the job. Or we've based it on our talent and all of a sudden life changes, our bodies change, we can't do what we used to do. Somebody more talented comes along. That's not how God defines greatness. And that's how a believer should never root their greatness and their self-worth and their value and significance in such foolish, fleeting things. God has designed us for true greatness. True greatness in the sense that He has made us as the crown and glory of all His creation. And he, we have value because He's made us and He's made us to rule all things. Now when we read this, we ask ourselves the question exactly what the writer of Hebrews wants us to ask. And that says, how in the world can the writer say to us that God has made man to be the pinnacle of His creation and that He has crowned Him with glory and splendor and He has put everything in subjection to man? Because when we look around at the world, we clearly can see that everything right now does not look like it is in subjection to man. Does it? It doesn't to me. And that's exactly where he wants us to go. Well, what's happened? Why not? In verse 8 he says this, now putting everything in subjection to him, he's left nothing outside of his control. Here's the key. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. Ah. So at the moment, we don't see everything the way it ultimately is. At the moment, we don't see things the way that they really are. At the moment, we don't see life the way that it's going to be forever. It takes us back to there's a world that is and there's a world that's to come. Do you see that? At the moment... God has created man with glory and splendor. He's put all things in subjection to man. He has created man for greatness and to rule all of his creation. But at the moment, we don't see the reality of that. Why not? Because something dreadful happened. In the Garden of Eden, where God put King Adam and Queen Eve, I almost forgot her name, they rebelled against him. Instead of exercising the dominion that he had created them for, the eternal dominion over all of his creation. And sort of, instead of exercising the greatness for which they were made, the purpose, the value, the unique thing that God had created them for forever, they chose to pursue other pleasures. And they sinned against the God who made them. And the consequences of that have been remarkable. The consequences are remarkable for man. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3, at the end of that whole fall narrative, Adam, God speaks to Adam and he says this, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat of the plants of the field. And by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken your dust To dust, you'll return. What is the consequence of all that? The consequence of all that is this. God had created them to rule, to be great forever. 
They rejected God's design for them and rebelled against Him. And the consequences of that are remarkable. The creation that previously cooperated with them will no longer cooperate with them. That's what God was saying to Adam. Adam, what came easy to you, the exercise of dominion, the exercise of rule over all of my creation, what's been easy for you up to this point is going to be painful and hard from this point. What you've been able to do with ease because I designed you to do it with ease is now going to be hard and it's going to be painful and there's going to be pain and there's going to be difficulty and there's going to be discouragement and it's going to be hard day after day after day after day and the creation that you were designed to, to, to have dominion over is no longer going to cooperate with you it's going to rebel against you non-stop that's the consequence of your fall it's the consequence of your sin. And not only that, Adam, your own soul is now corrupted by sinful desires and sinful passions and sinful selfish lusts. And destruction is going to come. You see, that's what we see now. We see the result of that right now. That's what we see. That's what you see when you look around. When you and I look around at the world today, you know what we see? We see a world, we see a world where men do rule. And look at the chaos. Look at the chaos. Look at the kind of men that rule in various parts of the world. Are they the kind of men that God designed Adam and Eve to be? Are they the kind of men that when you look at them, when you watch their behavior, when you hear their words, you say, now I see the glory and the majesty of my Creator in that person. I see the dominion of God being established in the world in a way that brings honor and glory and majesty to God and that ruler. Just shake your head with me this way or that way. Do you see that kind of ruler ruling the world right now among men? I'll tell you the answer to that. It's this. You do not. You see men with corrupted passions and sinful hearts and selfish lusts that rule the world. And we have chaos and we have mess all around us. You see, the problem is, now, no matter how much power a man or a woman can accumulate for themselves, he can't rule over nature, he can't really rule over other people well, and he can't even rule over his own nature anymore. He can't even control himself. G.K. Chesterton said this, Whatever else is true about man... This one thing is certain. Man is not what he was meant to be right now. So man was created for greatness, to rule it and exercise God's dominion over the creation. But right now we can't see that because sin had entered the picture. But it will not always be like it is right now because something else remarkable has happened better yet someone else remarkable has happened in verse 9 he says this but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels namely jesus crowned with glory and honor what we don't see right now is this all creation in subjection to man what we do see right now is jesus who incidentally was a man just like we saw a few things about people, mankind, we see a few things about Jesus. Very similar. He was, a, for a little while, made lower than the angels. What's that all about? 
Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all, the went, all, all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee in the town of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was the house and lineage of David. He went there to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. Someone remarkable happened. The God who made all the expanse of the heavens, the God of glory and majesty stepped out of all of that and he was made a little lower than the angels, giving birth to Mary, becoming a man. He took on human flesh He became a man. He submitted himself to a status a little lower than the angels for a little while. Why? So that he might taste death for everyone. Why would he do that? Because death was the penalty of his creation's sin. The word taste there does not mean sample. It means to partake fully. The God of heaven, the one who made you to be great, against whom you've rebelled and are the recipient of his just wrath, stepped out of heaven because he loves you, became a little lower than the angels. He tasted death on your behalf. He took on your sin. The writer of of, uh, Paul, the writer of the book of 2 Corinthians says this, He became sin who knew no sin for us he became our sin and he tasted death for us and he tells us something else about him that he's crowned with glory and honor what's that a reference to it's his resurrection and ascension the god of heaven the lord jesus christ stepped out of creation it was born lower than the angels he tasted death and after three days he rose from the grave and he ascended to the father and at this very moment he sits ruling at the right hand of the father in heaven he currently is ruling and reigning crowned with glory and splendor like we sang a moment ago he has no rival he has no equal there's none like him christ rules and he reigns right this moment The one who was born, the one who tasted death, the one who was risen, now reigns and he now rules. Now, when we look around the world right now, we don't see a world that's in subjection to man. But what we do see is Jesus. We do see Jesus who's come as a man, who's died as a man to pay the price for all men of death who's defeated death and risen to the right hand of the Father, and who's at this very moment crowned with glory and splendor. And the Word of God tells us He's coming back to establish the world that is to come forever. And when He does so, you know who's going to rule with Him forever? Those who belong to Him. That's you. And that's me. Revelation chapter 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. 
Well, I wish we had more time to walk through some more of this because there's so much more that we could say about this text. Let me wrap it up by saying it this way. Jesus came, he tasted death, he rose again, and he reigns now. And all of that was his undoing what took place in the Garden of Eden. His undoing the fall of men. His unwinding unwinding what Adam wound up. And you know why he did it? He did it for you. And he did it for me. I asked you earlier at the very beginning of this message when you look in the mirror, what do you see? Do you see greatness or do you see weakness? Do you see significance or do you see someone who lacks significance? Do you see someone who has hope and a future or do you see someone who's just kind of wandering around trying to figure out what life is all about? Listen, you need to understand this. The world to come that Jesus has secured by His burial, death, and resurrection, that world that is to come is designed to be ruled by you and to be ruled by me. By those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. We were made for that. We were not made for what's going on in this world right now. We were not made for this experience. We were not made for what's happening right now. Right now, we don't see things the way that they're going to be. But we see Jesus who sits at the right hand of the Father and has secured for us the way things are going to be. It's no longer in question. It's only a matter of time. No, you're made for greatness. But that greatness is not rooted in your talent. It's not rooted in your beauty. It's not rooted in your achievement. It's not rooted in your intellect. It's not rooted in how other people think of you. It's not, ruled, it's not, it's not rooted in anything this world has to say about you or life or circumstances has brought on about you. Your identity and your value and your purpose comes out of one thing and one thing alone. What the Lord Jesus Christ has done for you. He made you as the pinnacle of His creation. He made you to rule with Him forever. And He has died, given His life, and shed His blood to secure that future for you if you will but place your faith and trust in Him. It doesn't matter how beautiful you are. It doesn't matter what you achieve. It doesn't matter how powerful or rich you are. It doesn't matter how anybody in this world evaluates you through whatever grid or lens they want to look at you. The truth of the matter is, you were made to be great. You were made to be a king, to be a queen. And made by God Himself. Designed as the pinnacle of His creation to be that. And if you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, that is precisely what you will be forever. Forever. Your life might stink at the moment right now. There may be really painful and hard things that are unpleasant and no fun going on. You may not have achieved all the dreams that you dreamed of. You may not have accomplished all the things that you had hoped you would accomplish. You may look at yourself compared to somebody else and say, well, I'm not that much. Listen, you need to stop looking at yourself and see Jesus. When you look at yourself and you look at other people and you look through the lens of the world, it always causes us to evaluate ourselves absolutely wrongly and it drives us to despair. But when we stop looking at ourselves and we stop looking at other people and stop looking at the world and we see Jesus... We see ourselves for who we are and who we're made to be. And that will give you hope. And that will sustain you when life stinks. And that will help you to get up tomorrow and say, you know what? Today stinks, but God's made me to be a king. And he's made me to be a queen. And one day, I'll rule with him. 
secured by the blood of Jesus. That's how valuable you are. Let's pray. Oh, great God, you are majestic and glorious. You are beyond all things. I'm so struck, Lord, this morning by how as your people we value the wrong stuff. We care too much about what people think. We care too much about what the world has to say around us. We take on the value system and the lenses and the grids that the world tries to impose upon us. And because of it, so many of your people are beaten down, discouraged, despairing, hopeless, seeing themselves as insignificant and of no value. They've lost their joy, lost their pleasure in life. And like the little boy who swung strike three, they need to stop right now and reassess their lives in light of who you say they are. Lord, I pray for that discouraged believer this morning. I pray for that that dear woman who's beaten down. I pray for that... That man who's come, who had hoped to uh, be a better provider for his family, but it just hasn't materialized. He's discouraged, feeling like he's not worth much. Pray for that young person that lives in a selfish, lust-driven world, who isn't the most popular, maybe not the smartest. Maybe not the best looking. Doesn't get all the praise and applause of his peers or her peers. Is wondering what the future holds, if there's much worth living for. Lord, for those and for the many others who, for whom these themes just touch the radar of their lives, I pray that you'd help them to reassess themselves, to, to get a new grid from your word, that they might see themselves as great, as invaluable, the pinnacle of your creation designed to be a king and queen in your kingdom forever. And you're so serious about that, that you stepped out of heaven, you went to a cross, you shed your blood, and you died to secure that reality. Oh God, help us not to see the world around us, but help us see Jesus this morning. And in seeing him reevaluate ourselves. Help us for your sake and your glory, we pray. Amen.